Section number two of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Charles Lindup. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard. Section two. Michelangelo, Part Two. He worked away with untiring industry, and the church paid him well. But many of his pieces have been carried from Rome, and as they were not signed and scores of imitations sprang up, it cannot always be determined now what is his work and what not. He toiled alone, and allowed no prentice hand to use the chisel, and unlike the sculptors of our day, did not work from a clay model, but fell upon the block direct. I caught sight of Michelangelo at work, but could not approach for the shower of chips, writes a visitor at Rome in the year 1501. Perfect peace is what Michelangelo expected to find in the palace of the Pope. Later, he came to know that life is unrest, and its passage at best a zigzag course that only straightens to a direct line when viewed across the years. If a man does better work than his fellows, he must pay the penalty. Personality is an offence. In Rome there was a small army of painters and sculptors, each eager and anxious for the sole favour of the powers. They quibbled, quarrelled, bribed, cajoled, and even fair women used their influence with cardinals and bishops in favour of this artist or that. Michelangelo was never a favourite in society. Simpering beauty peeked at him from behind feather fans and made jokes concerning his appearance. Yet Walter Pater thought he found evidence that at this time Michelangelo was beloved by a woman, and that the artist reproduced her face and form and indirectly pictured her in poems. In feature, she was as plain as he, but her mind matched his and was of a caste too high and excellent to allow him to swerve from his high ideals. Yet the love ended unhappily, and in some mysterious way gave a tinge of melancholy and a secret spring of sorrow to the whole long life of the artist. Jealous competitors made their influence felt. Michelangelo found his work relegated to corners and his supplies cut short. At this time, an invitation came from Florence for him to come and make use of a gigantic block of marble that had lain there at the city gate, blackening in the dirt for a century. The Florence that had banished him now begged him to come back. Those who once leave Florence always sigh to return, says Dante. He returned and at once began work on the David. The result was the heroic statue that stood for three hundred years at the entrance to the Palazzo Vercchio, only a hundred feet from where Savonarola was hanged and burnt. The David is now in the Beldate, and if the custodian will allow you to climb up on a ladder, you will see that the top of the head shows the rough, unfinished slab just as it was taken from the quarry. Anyone but a master would have finished the work. This magnificent statue took nearly two years to complete. As a study of growing youth, 
boldly recognizing all that is awkward and immature, it has never ceased to cause wordy warfare to reign in the camp of the critics. The feet, hands and head are all too large, the Athenians say. But linger around the old swimming hole any summer day and you will see tough, bony, muscular boys that might have served as a model for the David. The heads of statues made by the Greeks are small in proportion to the body. The gladiator wears a number six hat and the discobolus one size smaller, yet the figures represent men weighing 180 pounds each. The Greeks aim to satisfy the eye and as the man is usually seen clothed, they reduced the size of the head when they showed the nude figure. But Michelangelo was true to nature, and the severest criticism ever brought against him is that he is absolutely loyal to truth. He was the first man ever to paint or model the slim, slender form of a child that has left its round baby shape behind and is shooting up like a lily stalk. A nude, hardy boy, six years old, reveals ankle bones, kneecap, sharp hips, ribs, collarbone and shoulder blade with startling fidelity. And why, being nature's work, it is any less lovely than a condition of soft, cushioned adipose we must let the critics tell, but Michelangelo thought it wasn't. From 1496, when Michelangelo first arrived in Rome, to 1504, he worked at nothing but sculpture. But now a change came over his restless spirit, for an invitation had come from the Gonfalonieri of Florence to decorate one of the rooms of the town hall, in competition with Leonardo da Vinci, the only Leonardo. He painted that strong composition showing Florentine soldiers bathing in the Arno. The scene depicts the surprise of the warriors as a trumpet sounds, calling them to battle with the enemy that is near at hand. The subject was chosen because it gave opportunity for exploiting the artist's marvellous knowledge of anatomy. Thirty figures are shown in various attitudes. Nearly all are nude, and as they scramble up the bank, buckling on their armour as they rush forward, eager for the fight, we see the wild, splendid swell of muscle and warm, tense, pulsing flesh. As an example of Michelangelo's consummate knowledge of form, it was believed to be his finest work. But it did not last long. The jealous Bandinelli made a strong bid for fame by destroying it. And thus do Bandinelli and Torrigiano go clattering down the corridors of time hand in hand. Yet we know what the picture was, for various men who saw it recorded their impressions, but although many of the younger artists of Italy flocked to Florence to see it, and many copied it, only one copy has come down to us, the one in the collection of the Earl of Leicester at Holcombe. So even beautiful Florence could not treat her gifted son with impartiality, and when a call came from Pope Julius II, who had been elected in 1503, to return to Rome, the summons was promptly obeyed. Julius was one of the most active and vigorous rulers the earth has known. He had positive ideas on many subjects and, like Napoleon, could do the thinking for a world. The first work he laid out for Michelangelo was a tomb, 
three stories high, with walls eighteen feet thick at the base, surrounded with numerous bas-reliefs and thirty heroic statues. It was to be a monument on the order of those worked out by the great Ramesses, only incorporating the talent of Greece with that of ancient and modern Rome. Michelangelo spent nearly a year at the Carrara quarries getting out materials and making plans for forwarding the scheme. But gradually it came over him that the question of economy, which was deeply rooted in the mind of Julius, forbade the completion of such a gigantic and costly work. Had Julius given Michelangelo carte blanche orders on the treasury and not meddled with the plans, this surpassing piece of architecture might have found form. But the fiery Julius, aged seventy-four, was influenced by the architect Bramante to demand from Michelangelo a bill of expense and definite explanation as to details. Very shortly after, Michelangelo quit work and sent a note to the Pope to the effect that the tomb was in the mountain of Carrara with many beautiful statues, and if he wanted them, he had better look for someone to get them out. As for himself, his address was Florence. The Pope sent couriers after him, one after another, until five had been dispatched, but neither pleading, bribes nor threats could induce him to return. As the scientist constructs the extinct animal from a thigh bone, so we can guess the grandeur of what the tomb might have been from the single sample that has come down to us. The one piece of work that was completed for this tomb is the statue of Moses. If the reputation of Michelangelo rested upon nothing else than this statue, it would be sufficient for undying fame. The Moses probably is better known than any other piece of Michelangelo's work. Copies of it exist in all important galleries. There are casts of it in fifty different museums in America, and pictures of it are numberless. There it stands, in the otherwise obscure church of San Pietro in Vincola today, one hand grasping the flowing beard and the other sustaining the tables of the law, majesty, strength, wisdom beaming in every line. As Mr. Simmons has said, it reveals the power of Pope Julius and Michelangelo fused into a Jove. And so the messengers and messages were in vain, and even when the Pope sent an order to the Gonfaloniere Soderini, the actual ruler of Florence, to return the artist on pain of displeasure, the matter still rested. Michelangelo said he was neither culprit nor slave and would live where he wished. At length, the matter got so serious that it threatened the political peace of Florence, and in the goodly company of cardinals, bishops and chief citizens, Michelangelo was induced to go to Bologna and make peace with the Pope. His first task now was a bronze statue of Julius, made, it is stated, as a partial reproduction of the Moses. Descriptions of it declare it was even finer than the Moses, but alas, it only endured four years, for a mob evolved it into a cannon to shoot stones, and at the same time ousted Julius from Bologna. Michelangelo, very naturally, seconded the anathematization of the Bolognese by Julius, not so much for the insult to the Pope as for the wretched lack of taste they had shown in destroying a work of art. 
Had they left the beautiful statue there on its pedestal, Bologna would now on that account alone be a place of pilgrimage. The cannon they made is lost and forgotten, buried deep in the sand by its own weight, for mine hair Krupp can make cannon, but woe betide us, who can make a statue such as Michelangelo made? Michelangelo now followed the Pope to Rome, and began a work that none other dare attempt, but which today excites the jealous admiration of every artist's soul who views it, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Ghirlandaio, Perugino, Botticelli, and Luca Signorelli had worked on the walls with good effect, but to lie on one's back and paint overhead so as to bring out a masterly effect when viewed from seventy feet below was something they dare not attempt. Michelangelo put up his scaffolds, drew designs and employed the best fresco artists in Italy to fill in the colour. But as they used their brushes, he saw that the designs became enfeebled under their attempts. They did not grasp the conception, and in wrath he discharged them all. He then obliterated all they had done, and shutting out the ceiling from everyone but himself, worked alone. Often for days he would not leave the building, for fear someone would meddle with the work. He drew up food by a string, and slept on the scaffold without changing his clothes. After a year of intense application, no one but the artist had viewed the work. The Pope now demanded that he should be allowed to see it. A part of the scaffolding was struck, and the delight of the old Pope was unbounded. This was in 1509, but the completed work was not shown to the public until All Souls' Day 1512. The guides at the Vatican tell us this ceiling was painted in 22 months, but the letters of Michelangelo recently published show that he worked on it over four years. He contains over 300 figures, all larger than life, and some of 15 feet long. A complete description of the work Michelangelo did in this private chapel of the Pope would require a book, and in fact several books have been written with this ceiling as a subject. The technical obstacles to overcome in painting scenes and figures on an overhead surface can only be appreciated by those who have tried it. We can better appreciate the difficulties when we think that, in order even to view the decorations with satisfaction, large mirrors must be used or one must lie prone on his back. In the ability to foreshorten and give harmonious perspective, supplying the effect of motion, distance, upright movement, coming toward you or moving away, all was worked out in this historic chapel in a way that has excited the wondering admiration of artists for three hundred years. When the scaffolding was at last removed, the artist thought for a time he had done his last work. The unnatural positions he had been obliged to take had so strained the muscles of his neck that on the street he had often to look straight up at the sky to rest himself, and things on a straight line in front he could not distinguish. Eyes, muscles, hands refused to act normally. My life is there, on the ceiling of the chapel of Sixtus, he said. He was then thirty-nine years old. Fifty eventful years of life and work 
were yet before him. When Pope Julius died in 1513, Leo X, a son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, was called to take his place. We might suppose that Leo would have remembered with pride the fact that it was his father who gave Michelangelo his first start in life and have treated the great artist in the way Lorenzo would, were he then alive. But the retiring, abstemious habits of Michelangelo did not appeal to Leo. The handsome and gracious Raphael was his favourite, and at the expense of Michelangelo, Raphael was petted, fated and advanced. Hence arose that envious rivalry between these two great men, which reveals each in a light far from pleasant, just as if Rome were not big enough for both. The pontificate of Leo X lasted just ten years. On account of the lack of encouragement Michelangelo received, it seems the most fruitless season of his whole life. Clement VII, another member of the Medici family, succeeded Leo. Clement was too sensible of Michelangelo's merit to allow him to rust out his powers in petty tasks. He conceived the idea of erecting a chapel to be attached to the church of San Lorenzo at Florence to be the final resting place of the great members of the Medici family. Michelangelo planned and built the chapel and for it wrought six great pieces of art. These are the statues of Lorenzo de' Medici, father of Caterina de' Medici, who was such a large black dot on the page of history, a statue of Giuliano de' Medici, whose name lives now principally because Michelangelo made this statue, and the four colossal reclining figures known as Night, Morning, Dawn and Twilight. This chapel is now open to the public, and no visitor at Florence should miss seeing it. The statue of Lorenzo must ever rank as one of the world's masterpieces. The Italians call it Il Pensiero. The sullen strength of the attitude gives one a vague, ominous impulse to get away. Someone has said that it fulfills Milton's conception of Satan brooding over his plans for the ruin of mankind. In 1527, while Michelangelo was working on the chapel, Florence was attacked and sacked by the Constable de Bourbon. The Medici family was again expelled, and from the leisurely decoration of a church in honour of the gentle Christ, the artist was called upon to build barricades to protect his native city. His ingenuity as an engineer was as consummate as his exquisite idea of harmony, and for nine months the city was defended. Through treachery, the enemy was then allowed to enter, and Michelangelo fled. Riots and wars seem as natural as thunderstorms to the Latin people, but after a year the clouds rolled by, Michelangelo was pardoned, and went back to his work on beautifying the chapel of San Lorenzo. In 1534, Pope Clement was succeeded by Paul III. Paul was seventy years old, but the vigour of his mind was very much like that of the great Julius. His first desire was to complete the decoration of the Sistine Chapel so that the entire interior should match the magnificence of the ceiling, and to the task he summoned Michelangelo. The great artist hesitated. The ceiling was his supreme work as a painter, 
and he knew deep down in his heart that he could not hope to surpass it, and the risk of not equaling it was too great for him to run. The matter was too delicately personal to explain, only an artist could understand. Michelangelo made excuses to the Pope, and declared he had forgotten how to use a brush, that his eyesight was bad, and that the only thing he could do was to carve. But Paul was not to be turned aside, and reluctantly Michelangelo went back to the Sistine that he had left over twenty years before. Then it was that he painted the last judgment on the wall of the upper end of the chapel. Hamerton calls this the grandest picture ever executed, at the same time acknowledging its faults in taste. But it must be explained that the design was the conception of Julius, endorsed by Pope Paul, and it surely mirrors the spiritual qualities, or lack of them, in these men better than any biography possibly could. The merciful Redeemer is shown as a muscular athlete, full of anger, and the spirit of revenge, proud, haughty, fierce. The condemned are ranged before him, a confused mass of naked figures, suspended in all attitudes of agony and terrible foreboding. The saved are ranged on one side, and do not seem to be of much better intellectual and spiritual quality than the damned. Very naturally, they are quite pleased to think that it is the others who are damned, and not they. The entire conception reveals that masterly ability to portray the human figure in every attitude of fear or passion. A hundred years after the picture was painted, some dignitary took it into his head that portions of the work were too daring, and a painter was set at work robing the figures. His fussy attempts are quite apparent. Michelangelo's next work was to decorate the Paulina Chapel. As in his last work on the Sistine, he was constantly interrupted and advised and criticised. As he worked, cardinals, bishops and young artists watched and suggested, but still the conversion of St. Paul and the crucifixion of St. Peter in the Paulina must ever rank as masterly art. The frescoes in the Paulina Chapel occupied seven years and ended the great artist's career as a painter. He was seventy-three years old. Pope Paul then made him chief architect of St. Peter's. Michelangelo knew the difficulties to be encountered, the bickerings, jealousies and criticisms that were inseparable from the work, and was only moved to accept the place on Pope Paul's declaration that no one else could do as well and that it was the will of God. Michelangelo looked upon the performance as a duty and accepted the task, refusing to take any recompense for his services. He continued to discharge the duties of the office under the direction of Popes Paul, Pius IV and Pius V. In all he worked under the pontificates of seven different popes. The Dome of St. Peter's, soaring to the skies, is his finest monument. The self-sustaining, airy quality in this stupendous structure hushes the beholder into silence, and yet that same quality of poise, strength and sufficiency marks all of the work of this colossus, whether it be painting, architecture or sculpture. America has paid tribute to Michelangelo's genius 
by reproducing the dome of St. Peter's over the Capitol at Washington. Michelangelo died at Rome, aged 89, working and planning to the last. His sturdy frame showed health in every part, and he ceased to breathe just as a clock runs down. His remains were secretly taken to Florence and buried in the church of Santa Croce. A fine bust marks the spot, but the visitor cannot help feeling a regret that the dust of this marvellous man does not rest beneath the zenith of the dome of St. Peter's at Rome. Sitting calmly in this quiet corner and with closed eyes, viewing Michelangelo's life as a whole, the impression is one of heroic strength, battling with fierce passions and becoming victor over them by working them up into art. The mould of the man was masculine, and the subdued sorrow that flavours his whole career never degenerates into sickly sentimentality or repining. The sonnets of Michelangelo, recently given to the world, were written when he was nearly seventy years old. Several of the sonnets are directly addressed to Vittoria Colonna, and no doubt she inspired the whole volume. A writer of the time has mentioned his accidentally finding Michelangelo and Vittoria Colonna seated side by side in the dim twilight of a deserted church, talking soft and low. Deserted churches have ever been favourite trysting places for lovers, and one is glad for this little glimpse of quiet and peace in the tossing, troubled life journey of this tireless man. In fact, the few years of warm friendship with Vittoria Colonna is a charmed and temperate space without which the struggle and unrest would be so ceaseless as to be appalling. Sweet, gentle and helpful was their mutual friendship. At this period of Michelangelo's life, we know that the vehemence of his emotions subsided and tranquillity and peace were his for the rest of his life, such as he had never known before. The woman who stepped out of high society and won the love of this stern yet gentle old man must have been of a mental and spiritual quality to command our highest praise. The world loves Vittoria Colonna because she loved Michelangelo and led him away from strife and rivalry and toil. End of section 2